Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. Today's show is A Tale of Two Halves. We begin with a new book which can only be described as an epic, a 230,000-word dictionary, and its focus, The Cure. It is a labour of love, fact and fandom wrapped up in an exquisitely packaged, beautiful new doorstop. Author Simon Price pops into Midori House to visit Monocle's Andrew Muller, who brings to the conversation his own experiences on the road with Robert Smith & Co. Then we'll hear all about one artist's evolution from collector of rabbinical portraits to eventually creating them himself. We'll explore the unusual history of these paintings and how artist Joel Messler is keeping the tradition alive, as well as the reflections they invite on community, religion and the future. First up, many bands have been subject at some point during their career to the A to Z device. It was or is a favourite of music press features editors attempting to break up the slabs of text on their pages. Few bands justify an entire encyclopaedia, but one who surely do are The Cure. The Cure are now nudging a half-century of existence, have assembled a catalogue riddled with references, allusions and connections, and inspired a mythology constructed in their honour by several generations of fans. All of which is chronicled in Curapedia, a lavish chronicle of The Cure's history by Simon Price. Simon spoke to Monocle's contributing editor and his former melody maker colleague, Andrew Muller. Before we get on to the cure as a specific subject, I, I did want to ask something about the, the rock biographer's craft, because you've kind of done this before with a book about Manic Street Preachers, another band you're extremely fond of. And I, I did want to wonder out loud whether it, it takes the shine off at all, whether you find yourself thinking, I now know far too much about these people. <laughs> there was definitely a period of several months where I never wanted to listen to a Cure record again in my life. Um, so there is that. But I don't know, I think I'm, I'm an overthinker with music. I always, probably to a fault, wonder what it all means, where it all comes from, to the extent that I almost can't enjoy the music just for the music anymore. And I, I always need to delve into the context, into the sort of social, political, cultural currents that inform a band and make them what they are. And a format like an A to Z is, is perfect for doing that. When the publishers originally came to me and said, why don't we just do a big A to Z of The Cure? I thought, is that a bit of a gimmick, um, doing it in that format? But the more I thought about it, I thought it kind of liberates me from a linear timeline. Because life is chaos, particularly <laughs> rock and roll life is chaos. And the job of a biographer is to try to apply some sort of order to that mess. And... You know, without being facetious about it, alphabetical order is as good or as bad as any. And and it did allow me to write thematically um, so that I could cut across different eras and look at the cure's relationship to things like religion, politics, sex, drugs, alcohol, all that stuff, but also trivial things like football, hair, makeup, 
which turns out maybe not to be that trivial once you start looking into it. I, I, I did think it worked really well for exactly that reason, because on the one hand, yes, rock and roll lives are chaos, but on the other, they're also actually quite repetitive, which is why a lot of rock biographies get boring. Band makes record, goes on tour, band makes record, goes on tour, band falls out with each other, probably don't speak to each other for a few years, but then make a record and go on tour. So, yeah, I, the A to Z approach works really well for a group like The Cure, but I also did end up wondering, vast and sprawling though the book is, were there entries that you either finished or got halfway through and then jumped because you just thought, God, even by my standards, this is getting obscurantist? No, and that's the problem. <laughs> that is why the book is half the length of the Bible. It's the length of Ulysses or Middlemarch, which is, it's probably got, got more jokes in it than any of those. But uh, it was a case of me almost daring my editors to say, well, go on then, cut this out. If you think that's obscure, wait till you read the next chapter. Yeah, it, it's the sort of thing that um, once you start unpacking, there is a lot to unpack. The Cure are one of those bands who really kind of feed your head. They almost hand you a box with you know thoughts written on it ideas written on it and, and once you open it up it ends up being bottomless because there's so much that feeds into what they do you know uh, Robert Smith is extremely well read and the influence of literature and poetry on the Cure's work is is vast so there are things like that but yeah the, the sort of research rabbit holes I ended up going down so for example there's there's an instrumental that was intended to appear on a disc accompanying the Wish album, ended up coming out on a sort of fan-only cassette, which is named after an obscure beach on the Shetland Islands called Ouya Sound. And I had to find out about that. I couldn't just say it was named after a beach. I had to have some facts about it. Um, the same with, there's a song called Jupiter Crash, about an asteroid crashing into Jupiter. I had to have all the facts about that as well. They filmed a video at the home of the Duke of Northumberland. Well, who's he? You know, and all this kind of stuff. Um, I, I couldn't just let anything, anything slide. So, um, yeah, I, I think <laughs> maybe if, if you can describe Robert Smith's oeuvre as a sort of as one man's ongoing mental unraveling over the period of 45 years I had a bit of a mini version of that myself during the making of the book. You write in the introduction about that aspect of the cure you mentioned there that they, they do present this kind of not just their own records but this portal into all sorts of other film literature music and other things besides but do you recall well your first point of contact with the group, the first thing that made you think, OK, these are going to be my people? The first time I ever heard them, uh, it didn't click. Uh, it was uh, listening to the Top 40 rundown on a portable transistor radio on the school playing fields and hearing a forest and just not really getting it at that point. But I was 12. But by the time I was 15, they were starting to appear on Top of the Pops. And the first song that I saw them perform on that show was The Walk. And, yeah, something definitely clicked there. The way, just his way of being in the world. I'd already had a little bit of an inkling that these might be my people. There was a short-lived and very controversial glossy music magazine called Flexipop um, in the early 80s. And one thing that they would do in this magazine was ask stars to write a diary of their week. And Robert Smith wrote one, which was one of the most gently strange things I'd ever seen and it inspired me to tear the pages out 
and put them in my blazer pocket and take it to school with me every day just to read it because he and his and, and his partner Mary were, were just doing things that grown-ups are not meant to do like deciding at one in the morning to go out in their back garden and stage a ballet and things like that um in a very small way mind-blowing to me that well yeah if, if you're an adult you can be or do anything and and here's this guy seemingly living his best life with strange hair strange makeup but you know seeming to be completely in control and in charge of who he is and I found it inspiring and I think that's something that maybe a a lot of Cure fans have have had that same feeling maybe just decades separated from when I had it. How did you end up adjusting for, I, I think, the amount of cognitive dissonance which is necessary to keep that Robert Smith in your head? Uh, you know, the consumptive, mascara-smeared, angst-ridden, Rambo-quoting poet uh, versus what he is actually really like. And it was a shock to me, I remember, when I went on tour with them for Melody Maker, where we both worked in, in 1992, and discovered that it was more of your sort of, like, lad stag do vibe um, than anything you might have been led to expect from their records there is that aspect to them the sort of you know beer swilling football loving side to them and I do remember when I was a very serious young man I found that a bit off-putting I thought well you know they're kind of faking it I remember there was a, a photo shoot that Tom Sheehan from Elsie Maker did of Robert Smith in an England football kit with Stuart Adamson of Big Country wearing a Scotland kit and they're both leaping for a ball and I thought that's not how I want to see my doomed romantic poet idol that's not what I want to want to think of but I snapped out of it myself in my early to mid 20s just deciding well life's too short you've got to enjoy all these things football and poetry why not um, and if that seems like a contradiction to other people let them figure it out let them worry about it and I think Robert Smith had a much more healthy attitude than I did that you know he just thought throughout his whole life why not enjoy it all the book, I think it is important to make clear, is is very far from a hagiography. There's portions of it which are quite critical of the group, not so much about what work they created, but how they went about creating it. There's some respect there. I mean, there's an entire entry uh, on their absolutely merciless bullying of, well, largely former member, but founder member, Lol Tolhurst. W- were you beset by any reservations when writing those sections? Yeah, it was very difficult writing the chapter about bullying it was the elephant in the room really because anybody who remembers that time and remembers the way that the other members spoke about Lowell Tolhurst will remember that it was merciless and did seem to be exceptionally cruel obviously none of us on the outside knew what was really going on inside the band knew what the dynamic was Lowell himself in his memoir Cured has kind of owned his own mistakes and his own failings, and even writes something to the effect that he deserved it and he brought it on himself. I don't agree with that. I I don't think that the victim should ever say that about themselves. And there are also quotes from other band members who say that, in hindsight, nobody comes out of it well. And, you know, that the the whole thing was sort of quite juvenile and uh, and, and quite, quite cruel. I couldn't just gloss over that stuff, absolutely not. 
Are you expecting or have you received any angry emails yet? Not necessarily about those sections, but from any by, you know, furious Cure fans who do tend, uh, as your own book kind of demonstrates, towards the obsessive? Surprisingly not. I was waiting for um, a backlash from the fans, but the Cure fan community um, have been extraordinarily supportive of the whole thing. Um, There have been a couple of corrections, which they very kindly set. But that's the thing. Uh, When I pressed send on an email to my publishers on Easter Monday this year with a 230,000 word document, which was the first manuscript, I knew there would be mistakes buried in there somewhere. I just didn't know what they were. By definition, if I knew what they were, they wouldn't be in there. And that's a weird feeling when you send something in like that. And I think if you're a fan, that is part of the fun. You get a kick out of knowing more than the supposed expert. The fans will always know more than I, than I do about The Cure because it's their number one obsession, whereas as a professional music journalist, I have to be a bit more broad in my sort of intake. And I accept that. And yeah, I, I think I'd, I'd be the same in their shoes. There are a few cases in the book where I've corrected the band, corrected The Cure on, on, on claims that they've made about their own life that just don't stack up. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very much part of the fun is, is being right and the author being wrong. You said at the start of this interview that there was a period where you felt like you never wanted to hear a note they'd ever recorded ever again, which is entirely understandable. But out the other end of that, did all the research you'd done end up enlarging your appreciation of any particular album or any particular song? Were there things you ended up hearing in a different way now that you know something you didn't know before? The funny thing is that the world in general seemed to lose interest somewhat in The Cure around about the mid-90s when, you know, Britpop and grunge and things like that were taking more of our attention. But they carried on releasing albums in that time, which maybe I would have listened to them once, maybe even reviewed them for a newspaper, but then move on to the next thing because that's your job as a reviewer. But to revisit those albums that I hadn't paid much thought to was really interesting. There's one from 2000 called Blood Flowers, of which Robert is particularly proud. And uh, The Cure even performed that album as part of a trilogy with uh, Disintegration, you know, their, their, their biggest album, and Pornography, which is maybe their, their darkest and most intense uh, album. So he's obviously very, very proud of that. And, and yeah, just th- things like that. And also delving into B-sides that maybe I'd never heard before. And in some cases, you can see why they're B-sides, but they're still, but they're always interesting. The Cure are a very courageous band. They've never sort of sat still and just thought, well, this is what we do. This is Cure-type music. We're just going to keep churning it out. You know, they're not the Ramones, not that there's anything wrong with the Ramones. There's so much variety in there. So, for example, after they'd made their bleakest ever album, Pornography, in 1982, the band had almost ceased to exist and their manager, Chris Parry, challenged them and said, look, why don't you try writing some pop songs? And that was a risk because they they, they could have, well, and indeed succeeded in losing a vast part of their fan base, but they gained a whole new one by writing songs like The Love Cats. To sort of squander your gravitas, um, to bring in a bit of levitas, if I can use that word, uh, is something that not all bands in their position would have had the nerve to do, but it really paid off. Well, just finally then, and the inevitable smash hits variety hack question, which you must have given some thought while compiling this book, if you have to pick one Cure album, which one are you picking? If I was going to hand one to someone else, I would say 
kiss me, kiss me, kiss me, because it's a double and it's a sort of grab bag of all the great things that they can do from sort of frazzled psychedelia to sort of dark mystical gothic stuff to just brilliant pop songs like Just Like Heaven. But for me personally, listening at home, it is pornography because I can never quite shake off the inner goth. <laughs> Simon Price, thank you very much for joining us. Simon Price there in conversation with Monocle's Andrew Muller. And Curapedia, an A to Z of The Cure, is published by White Rabbit and it is out now. Now we head to Los Angeles and a new show at the David Kordansky Gallery from the artist, gallery impresario and Los Angeles native Joel Messler, which focuses on, supposedly, one of the fustier elements of figurative painting, rabbi portraiture. For a certain sort of person, every house had one, but no longer. Monocle contributor Marissa Masria-Katz caught up with Joel to find out more about the show. Joel Messler is a man who wears many hats. Gallerist, artist, father, and now a yarmulke, or skullcap. But before we listen to our conversation, there are a few words in Yiddish and Hebrew you'll need to know. First, shtetl. That means small Jewish town. Next, minyan. That's the number of adult Jews you need to gather if you want to pray. And then, Zrichat Shakiat Hashemesh, which means sunrise to sunset. That's the name of his newest exhibition, a collection of paintings reimagining Judaica and what it means when a Jewish boy becomes a man. Joel, how did you find yourself collecting rabbi paintings? My brother and I grew up with a few rabbi paintings in our house. So when my mother passed away and my brother and I were going through, you know, her recipes and her, all the tchotchkes and everything, I said to my brother, Matthew, I said, do you want the rabbi paintings? Do you take a couple? You take a, and he said, absolutely not. He doesn't want any. And uh, I took them. And when I wanted to hang them in our house, my house, my wife didn't really want them around the house either. So I put me, you know, one by my bed and I took a few of the others. I hung in the basement in my studio and um, I, you know, started thinking about it and that this was probably happening all over the shtetls, uh, Beverly Hills and Thousand Oaks and, uh, you know, the shtetls of Westchester and New City and all these places where Jews would be, you know, when I would go to friends' houses, you know, my friends' parents had rabbis hanging in their homes. But in my generation, we don't hang rabbis. It's just not a thing you do. So I'm like, where are these rabbis going? Like, who's taking care of these rabbis? And being an avid Ben Sean collector, as I was, I realized that in these same auction houses, they were selling these rabbi paintings. And 
not only were they selling these rabbi paintings, but nobody was buying them. They would go for no bids. They would go unsold. And so I started to buy them and I would be the only buyer. And so, you know, if there were four in the sale, I would get all four. If there were five in the sale, I would get all five. All of a sudden, uh, being the alcoholic that I am, I started to acquire hundreds of rabbi paintings. And how did it go from collecting to painting and then to showing them initially with the gallery Chime and Read earlier this year? Since I paint pictures and I collect rabbi paintings, like all things that go well together, why don't I paint my rabbis? And I really didn't think anything like it, uh, of it at the time. But when John Chime offered to show them, him being, you know, kind of art dealer mentor of mine, I agreed to show them. And after people actually wanted to give me some shekels for my rabbi paintings, I realized that inadvertently I had done a mitzvah. I had essentially brought Judaica back onto the walls of my own generation. How did I do it? I didn't quite understand at first, but like by adding some good color and sexiness to the painting and modernizing it and making it I guess, more accessible and a few zeros at the end of these forgotten rabbis that I was collecting, I created a desire for people to acquire the rabbi again. And so, you know, all of a sudden, you know, these homes that were devoid again of Judaica and rabbis, all of a sudden there was a need, I guess, or a niche for these, for Judaica. And I realized that, again, there was a, that there's maybe a purpose in what I was doing as opposed to just, you know, painting pretty pictures. You're raising an interesting point, though. Why do you think the tradition stopped with our generation? I mean, why do you think that we felt we didn't need them hanging on our walls? Was it really just about color and style or was it something more visceral, like the way that your brother responded. I guess I'm just wondering, was it more than just the way it looked or was it about something else? I have many theories. I would say one of those is that our generation specifically is so entrenched in shame and trauma, as well as generational trauma, that we have been kind of fighting against generational trauma and so anything that represents those markers, uh, especially that of Judaism. And so I think that these pictures don't represent pride and and learning and and um, health and all of those things that, you know, they have now for me, but it's not how I was raised. And so I think that our generation have looked to other signs and symbols that perhaps move the marker a little bit away from that trauma. So you have a show debuting at the David Kordansky Gallery in Los Angeles with a lot of the rabbi paintings, but it's also a show that's kind of about something else. It has a larger meaning in a Jewish person's life. Can you explain to me the significance of it and also some of the other paintings that will be included in it, which are a kind of nod to when a Jewish boy becomes a man and has his bar mitzvah. Yeah, I mean, the fact that this show, you know, I'm from 
the shtetl of Los Angeles, 90210. And so this, in a sense, is like a coming home for me. And so I wanted to introduce the rabbis, which really I see as you know, a kind of a core aspect of what I'm doing now as a way to introduce those paintings to my home, but do it in a different way than I've been doing it here in New York. And so I wanted to do it with introducing it through kind of the lens of my older body of work. And so what I did was I set up 13 paintings of my text-based work, where I would use each painting as a one word or phrase how you would maybe an, a, an endearing term or word for a boy, you know, as they're moving through childhood. So, you know, it starts with sunrise, little guy, run, love, run. And as we move through the years, you know, you the sun kind of rises and the sun sets and and it becomes from night to day. And and um, as the boy becomes a man and, you know, at the end, we say kind of the term is little guy or young man. And when he's ready to become a man in the next room are nine rabbi paintings. And the boy is old enough now to sit with the, uh, be part of the minion. I've wanted to take a few seconds and listen to something. That was audio from your bar mitzvah when you were 13. And I wanted to talk a little bit about your own journey in that moment. Do you feel like your bar mitzvah may have technically happened then, but the way you're describing it now, it almost seems like you've just gone through another version of it. The way that you're explaining the essence or the meaning of the show, it's sort of like a renewal of the vows. Yeah, renewal or rebirth. You know, I'm seven and a half years sober. You know, the place of, I think, letting go of, I lived my entire life in the ego. And uh, it was a very destructive place, very dark place, full of shame and guilt. And it was the way that my parents raised me. I think, you know, even in my text-based work, you know, using words like surrender, you know, I was raised to believe that, um, you know, a, a term like surrender was a bad word, that one should never surrender, you know, that if you fall, you should get back up. And about seven and a half years ago, when I had to surrender and realized that, you know, my ego had led me to like myself took me to bad places that I needed to surrender, that I realized that this was actually a very healthy place to say that I didn't have all the answers and uh, that I had to look outside of myself. And there were some lessons in that that were also present in Judaism. I want to ask you about your life with these rabbis. Do you see a future with them? And how do you imagine their presence on the walls will transform the conversations of younger Jews and Jews of the next generation? I will keep painting rabbis as long as rabbis need to be uh, not thrown in the garbage. Uh, and I keep saying to uh, younger Jews that I'm getting older and I have things to do and I am getting 
tired. So if other people want to continue on or take over saving these rabbi paintings, I will gladly hand over this work, this niche that, you know, I didn't know was necessary, but I feel it is essential. And so I am willing to pass this responsibility on to really whomever I think will take it on with uh, responsibility and honor and love. Joel's show at the David Kordansky Gallery in Los Angeles runs to December 16th. For Monocle, this is Marissa Masria katz Thank you very much, Marissa, for that report. And that is it for this week. My thanks also to Simon Price and, of course, Monocle's Andrew Muller. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in. 